This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Sunday, April 14, 1935, was a bright day in Hooker, Oklahoma. The cloudless blue sky seemed to stretch on forever over the flat plains. Birds soared through the warm air as farmers below did their chores. Margie Daniels was out with her family when she noticed an enormous black cloud coming over the horizon. It looked like soot. Then came a wave of thousands of birds flapping furiously. They were fleeing from the black cloud, which was growing bigger and bigger. J.R. Davison was in the town of Texoma, 40 miles away. He saw the giant black monster approaching and hollered for his father. J.R. was shepherded inside, and the whole family took shelter, preparing themselves for the onslaught. Then it struck. The huge blast of wind and dust slammed into the wooden house until it shook. J.R.'s father clutched the two-by-fours that braced the ceiling. J.R. watched as the wood beams lifted six inches before his father could pull them back down. Forty miles away, Margie Daniels huddled next to her family's car as the swirling dust blasted them. Their neighbors were hiding behind their own car. They were all crying, and Margie heard someone say they were all going to die. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on the Dust Bowl, an eight-year period of intense drought in the Great Plains. During the 1930s, Dust storms destroyed millions of acres of farmland and displaced over three million families in the Midwestern United States. This week, we'll explore how the farming economy in the Dust Bowl region grew to incredible size before its collapse and hear about the storms of dust that swept across the nation, choking entire towns. Next week, we'll follow the survivors who fled their homes only to find the entire country gripped by the Great Depression. We'll hear about the efforts to restart the American economy and the lasting consequences of the Dust Bowl era. The beginnings of the Dust Bowl could be traced back to 1861 and the beginning of the Civil War. Part of President Lincoln's battle plan was to strengthen the Northern economy. In 1862, he signed the Homestead Act, which encouraged westward expansion by releasing public land to private owners. Along with promoting agriculture in the North, the law was an affront to the South, which wanted to maintain slavery in the newly settled states in the West. Those new states were now free of slavery under the Homestead Act. In 1865, the Civil War reached its bloody conclusion. Confederate leader Robert E. Lee surrendered his forces to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at a small courthouse in Virginia. The four-year war had taken a terrible toll on the economy of the South. And in the North, the government was now tasked with rebuilding a broken country. Veterans from both sides of the conflict were in search of new opportunities, and many of them began to look west. The West was fertile for agriculture, a region where anyone could find freedom and success if they were willing to work the land. There was endless wide open prairie, and the Homestead Act provided 160 acres to anyone over 21 years of age who declared themselves a homesteader. People of all backgrounds were eligible. Many of these settlers were recent immigrants. Others were former slaves or farmers whose land in the East had been seized or destroyed during the war. Anyone who could pay the registration fee of $18 was eligible to claim a land parcel. But there were some caveats. A homesteader didn't technically own the land at first. They had to live on the land for five years, build a home, and improve the property with farming. This process was called proving up. After the five years, the homesteader would bring two witnesses, usually neighbors, to the local government office to prove their claim that they had built and maintained a farm. They received a land patent, making the farm legally and permanently theirs. Many people hung these patents in a place of honor in their homes. It was a certification that they had worked hard, broken ground, and succeeded in turning the wild prairie into a productive, thriving farm. Nearly 10% of the country was settled under the Homestead Act. 
This wide swath of allotted land eventually covered over 200 million acres. Much of this territory was in central states like Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska. The vast majority of the settlement happened between 1890 and 1920. Hundreds of thousands of homesteaders received their patents during this period. They planted crops and raised livestock, and soon the region was called the breadbasket of America. But during this same period, prosperity and ignorance led farmers to make decisions which would destroy much of their land. If they had known what to look for, they might have protected themselves from the impending natural disaster. Instead, the breadbasket would soon become a dust bowl. The first warning came in the early 1890s in the Southern Plains. The farms there relied on steady rain and calm weather to produce a good harvest in the semi-arid climate. But the rainfall was declining. Crops started to wither and die in the heat. A drought had seized this corner of the breadbasket. Droughts are not uncommon in North America. In fact, native populations had understood the cyclical nature of rain and drought for centuries. And those that didn't suffered dire consequences. The ancient Maya, who lived in the Yucatan Peninsula in modern-day Mexico, were one such example. Between 600 and 800 CE, their civilization was at the height of its technological and cultural development. They built enormous stone pyramids in the jungles of Mesoamerica, and their art and culture spread across the continent. It was one of the most developed societies to ever inhabit the Americas. Then, over the course of only a few decades, the Maya society collapsed. The reasons for this are still a mystery, but scientists have found some clues in the sedimentary rock layers of the Yucatan. Using centuries-old samples collected from the bottom of a lake, scientists measured the historical changes in precipitation and evaporation. These changes are good indicators of drought. In the decades immediately after the Maya Empire reached its pinnacle, the samples showed a long period of drought. This period of low rainfall coincided with the disappearance of the civilization. This led scientists to speculate that the empire's economy had become too big. A crippling drought, in conjunction with overpopulation and deforestation, may have caused an economic crisis, a shortage of food and resources, and the downfall of the entire Maya civilization. Ten centuries later, a new population was overexpanding in the United States, leaving themselves vulnerable to another collapse. By 1894, the Great Plains were experiencing the worst dry period in 50 years. That same year, 17-year-old Charlie Helen moved to the town of Hebronville, Texas, to work on his uncle's cattle farm. Hebronville was hardly a town. It was only a train station amid the vast stretch of dry ranch land. The drought had taken a toll on the area, and keeping the land alive was a difficult task. It was even harder than usual for Charlie Helen. When Charlie was five years old, a horse-drawn cart ran him over in the street and crushed the lower half of his right leg. 
It had to be amputated, and for the rest of his life, he walked with crutches. But Charlie was a hard worker, and soon the Spanish-speaking cowboys were calling him El Cojo, the lame one. But it was a term of endearment, and Charlie enjoyed it. He spent a lot of time working in the fields with the cowboys, where he saw the consequences of the drought firsthand. The cattle had become thin and sickly. Most of the crops and natural prairie grasses had died, and the animals had quickly consumed whatever plants survived. The cowboys had to resort to feeding them cactus. This was a slow and difficult process, since they had to burn off the sharp spines before the cactus could be eaten. Charlie was concerned that they needed a more efficient way to keep cattle alive during periods of drought. Unfortunately, few people were concerned with how to conserve the topsoil before a drought destroyed the crops in the first place. This would prove disastrous for future generations. Not long after the 1894 drought came to an end, a new invention revolutionized farming, the gasoline-powered tractor. Before the tractor, farmers had to use plows pulled by horses or cattle. They could only plow about three acres a day. But with a tractor, a farmer could plow 50 acres a day. J.R. Davison, the son of a farmer, recalled the day his father came home with a John Deere tractor. He said, Dad would work it in the daytime. He'd run that thing all day. And when the sun went down, why, he'd come in and do the chores, and I'd go run in that tractor till morning. The tractor also increased the speed of harvesting by pulling combine harvesters that could reap and thresh grains with a single machine. Since planting and harvesting now required less manual labor, more land could be developed much more quickly. At the turn of the 20th century, the agricultural infrastructure of the United States was still in its infancy. The country relied on foreign trade to provide enough food for its citizens. For example, the U.S. imported almost a third of its wheat supply from Russia. Then, in 1905, a political revolution and worker strike in Russia halted most of the country's agricultural exports. A quarter of the world's wheat came from Russian fields, so this led to a global shortage and, as a result, an increase in price. Farmers in the U.S. now had a motivation to grow wheat instead of other crops, and the potential for profit inspired more and more homesteaders to move out west and begin working their own land. Soon, there was a booming market for land speculation in the Great Plains. Railroad companies and even state governments advertised the vast tracts of land available ready to be farmed, which was easy with the new gas-powered tractor. The land salesmen were called boosters. They were paid a commission by government land agents for promoting settlement in the plains. And since profit margins were king, the boosters used any and all methods to entice people to sign for land patents. Misleading information was common, and promises of rain and overflowing harvests were easy to make. More and more people moved west, building houses and buying tractors on credit. 
Some land speculators started farms themselves, leaving the land to laborers and only returning when it was time to harvest and cash in. These speculators were called suitcase farmers. Farming was a lucrative business, and there were many inexperienced homesteaders trying to cash in. They didn't know the best practices for conserving soil or rotating crops. They didn't know that the rampant plowing and harvesting was destroying the topsoil and natural flora of the Great Plains. The plowing of new soil for farmland is called sod busting. As more farmers moved into the region, they found that much of the easily plowed land had already been settled. So they looked to uncultivated areas to tame with the plow. They were successful as long as there was rain. The newly turned soil was fresh and fertile. The boosters explained it with the motto, the rain follows the plow. But none of the homesteaders knew the weather patterns of the region, nor did the boosters selling the land. They didn't realize there was a variance in rainy and dry periods. They believed the rains would keep falling every year at the same rate. They were wrong. The arid climate of the Great Plains followed a cycle of about 30 years of rain, followed by a few years of drought. Then the cycle would repeat again, over and over through the centuries. In the decades immediately after the Civil War, while the Homestead Act was encouraging millions to move west, the plains were in the rainy part of the climate cycle. Rainfall was consistent and frequent. This encouraged farmers to keep planting crops and expanding their herds. Even though rainfall in the plains was being measured and recorded, the records didn't reach far enough back in history to note the climate cycle. Explorers and settlers had been moving through the plains for most of the 19th century, but their observations weren't concerned with the potential for farming. The drought in 1894 had been noted, but it was considered a fluke in an otherwise fertile climate. While the rain was falling, the newly invented gasoline engine allowed the farms of the Great Plains to spread, covering more and more of the West. The American economy was booming. But a political disaster 5,000 miles away was about to set off a chain of events that would make the farming industry both even more profitable and dangerously unstable. We'll hear about the grain that was more valuable than gold right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The Great Plains had been settled by over a million homesteaders by 1910, and more people were still moving west to cash in on the huge agricultural expansion. New farmers were clear-cutting their land of trees and tall grasses to make way for fields of crops and grazing livestock. They plowed up millions of acres with incredible speed, using tractors to turn more topsoil than ever before. 
America was ready to become part of the global economy, even if it meant sacrificing its natural resources to do so. Then on June 28, 1914, a Serbian assassin shot and killed the Austro-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The empire declared war on Serbia, and the two nations' allies jumped to their respective defenses. The First World War had begun. Soon, all of Europe was sending armies to dig trenches and build encampments across the continent. Agricultural productivity waned as the European infrastructure was destroyed by the war. Fields of crops turned to mud under army boots. Railways transporting goods were destroyed. Farmers became soldiers and left their land unattended. The United States joined the war in 1917, supporting Britain and France. Since the conflict wasn't taking place on U.S. soil, America could contribute by producing grain and beef for exports. The agriculture market rose steadily throughout the late 1910s, hitting a peak in 1918. Wheat was especially valuable. The golden grain became the primary export of Midwestern farmlands. The motto of many advertisements was that wheat would win the war. Farmers greatly expanded their wheat production as wartime prices skyrocketed. There was little concern for sustainability or conservation when there was so much money to be made. New fields were clear-cut and other crops were plowed under to make way for rows and rows of gold. Any attempts at crop rotation were foregone. Crop rotation is an important part of successful and sustainable agriculture. Not all plants need the same nutrients in the same amounts. When the same type of crop is grown in the same field season after season, the particular nutrients that crop needs are depleted from the soil. Rotating crops periodically allows those nutrients to replenish. For example, if a farmer grows corn in a field for three years, they may want to grow soybeans in that field for the next three years. Some fields that served as grazing land for livestock also needed time to replenish. Many of the new farmers in the plains had come from the eastern states where the soil was richer and deeper and the climate was more humid. They could simply plow deeper to find fertile soil. This was not the case in the plains where the cycle of drought and high winds left the topsoil layer very thin, sometimes only a few inches deep. The most efficient way to expand then was by finding new land and sod busting. After all, the Great Plains stretched as far as the eye could see. Many homesteaders believed there would never be a shortage of land. But as the trees and grasses disappeared under the plows, there were no roots to absorb and hold rainwater. The unrotated crops quickly ate up what was left of the fertile soil. The region's natural defense against drought had been destroyed. More than 80 million acres of the Great Plains were planted by homesteaders by the time the First World War ended on November 11, 1918. The price of wheat fell after the war, and farmers were left with fields full of grain that they couldn't sell for the same profit. 
The overplanting of a single crop had left no recourse if the crops died or lost their market value. To offset the low crop prices, farmers had to expand their fields, destroying more of the naturally drought-resistant grasses. With wider fields, they were forced to find new methods of cutting down labor time, which meant buying new, expensive machinery on credit. Farmers quickly found themselves in a vicious cycle of continual debt. While the rest of the country prospered in the 1920s, the Southern Plains had begun the spiral towards the terrible era of the Dust Bowl. The Roaring Twenties were a time of huge economic gains throughout America. This was due to the rapid growth of the stock market. The stock market allowed the well-off to invest the money they already had and reap even more profits in return, all without lifting a finger. A company would sell shares in their business to raise money for expansion, and anyone who bought the shares would become part owner of the company. Then, when the company turned a profit, the shareholders received a cash payout. The biggest profits were made in oil and manufacturing, while investment in agriculture fell by the wayside. Now that citizens of the East could make spectacular amounts of money in the stock market, nobody needed to move west and till the land to make their fortune. Soon, people were buying stocks on margin, which meant they only had to put up part of the money and borrowed the rest from a stockbroker. Buying on margin was just like buying farm equipment on credit. It was a good way for newcomers to get their start, but if those profits never materialized, the debts could never be repaid. But farmers relied on natural resources like rain and soil. Their fate was left in the hands of nature. Stocks never suffered from drought or locusts. Money was forever or so it was said. While bankers and brokers made a profit, the breadbasket of America was heading towards economic ruin. The abrupt shift from a focus on agriculture to financial investment only took a few years. The American economy no longer relied on crop exports, and farming was no longer lucrative. Manufacturing became the primary export of the country. Mining and steel mills sprung up around the Great Plains, employing hundreds of thousands of workers in the areas once known for farming. Meanwhile, debts for equipment hung over homesteaders whose farms had never regained their profits. They were stuck on the lands they'd cultivated, watching helplessly as it lost value. When farmers defaulted on their credit en masse, banks began to fail. In Montana alone, over 200 banks had closed by 1925, and land values had been cut in half. Families began to abandon their farms and move back to cities. By 1928, over half the country's population was living in urban areas. The land was left behind, barren and uninhabited. Empty fields of soil dried out in the heat and wind. Then, in 1929, the stock market crashed. The seemingly endless supply of money had reached its limit. The stock market lost 25% of its value over a single weekend in October. People who had invested their life savings lost everything. The crash pushed America into the Great Depression. 
12 million people were unemployed. Food became scarce and unaffordable. People who'd been stock barons just yesterday were now standing in line for subsidized bread. Meanwhile, the price of wheat fell so low that it cost more to grow than it was worth to harvest. Dairy farmers began pouring out thousands of gallons of milk in protest, hoping a lower supply would inflate the abysmally low price. Farmers had been suffering from a broken economy for years, and now the rest of the country had joined their plight. But the attempts at fixing the crisis focused on the urban economy, not on natural resources. When rainfall was unusually low in 1930, most people were too concerned about finding their next meal to give it much thought. Then, in 1931, the rain stopped falling across the plains entirely. Without rain, the topsoil quickly dried into a fine black dust. The wind easily picked up the dust and lifted it thousands of feet into the air, creating rolling clouds that blotted out the sun and filled the air with swirling dirt. The era of the Dust Bowl had begun. We'll hear about the worst dust storm of the decade right after this. Now, back to the story. In the decades leading up to the stock market crash of 1929, Agriculture in the Great Plains had been a matter of economics. After the drought struck in 1931, the Dust Bowl was a matter of life or death. Nobody had been paying attention to the damage that overplowing caused until it was too late. Before the drought, even if crop yields were low one season, farmers were able to plant again the next year. In fact, the last wheat harvest during the rains had been exceptionally abundant. But now, the dusty earth couldn't hold seeds. The wind blew it all away in a cloud of dirt. In 1932, 14 dust storms were recorded across the plains. In 1933, that number doubled. The storms would last for hours and some for days. They came to be known as black blizzards. Herman Gertson grew up on a farm in Henderson, Nebraska. He remembered one storm where a black wall of dust appeared that made the day seem like night. He said it was like shutting a barn door. It was dark enough to make the chickens go to roost. The wind blew so fast that it would overtake vehicles racing away from the storm, with gusts reaching almost 100 miles an hour. It was like being in a sandblaster. People wore bandanas over their faces just to breathe. The dust would be so thick that a person could hold their hands in front of their face and not be able to see them. Avis D. Carlson, writing for the New Republic magazine, put it very bluntly. She wrote, The impact is like a shovelful of fine sand flung against the face. People caught in their own yards grope for the doorstep. Cars come to a standstill. We live with the dust, eat it, sleep with it, watch it strip us of our possessions. After each black blizzard passed, a thick layer of dust and dirt covered everything. Often, this layer was only a few inches thick, but sometimes the dirt was blown into drifts several feet high. 
it blocked the doors and windows of homes and trapped people in cars. The expensive machinery that farmers had bought was buried. So they would dig out the equipment and continue to plow the dry land, hoping to salvage enough of their crop to feed their families. The dust storms only made the drought worse. As more and more dirt was carried into the atmosphere, it blocked the sun. With less sunlight, any water that was still on the surface of lakes or rivers wouldn't evaporate as efficiently. Less water was rising into the clouds to form rain, and the blazing sun burned off what little humidity was left in the dusty air. The water cycle of the plains was in complete disarray. The dust storms themselves, which were a consequence of dry soil, were preventing the formation of rain that would make the ground moist again. It was a self-perpetuating disaster. Irrigation is used in times of drought to move water from other sources into dry topsoil. But in the 1930s, irrigation technology was time-consuming, relying on manual labor to dig wells and trenches. Without recent rainfall, the water reserves under the soil were difficult to reach, often over 150 feet underground. Without irrigation or rain, there was no hope. Farmers could only board up their windows and try and survive the terrible black blizzards. Most farmhouses on the plains were little more than three-room shacks made of wood. The air permeated through every crack and seam, and the joints would creak and flex in the wind, opening up new holes. Families would hang sheets over the doors and windows, trying to keep them wet with well water to block the dust. They crammed rags and glue into the crevices around windows. But nothing worked. The black dust was too fine. The tiny particles were impossible to filter out of the air and it was impossible not to breathe in the blowing dust. Farmers tried to work their fields in the storms, salvaging crops before they could be buried. Loreen White was just a little girl at the time, and she recalled her father staying out in the field while her siblings and her mother hid indoors. She said, we were always afraid. We didn't know whether dad could get in or not because the dust was so bad. Meanwhile, as dust was blowing across the plains, the country went to the polls to elect a new president. Herbert Hoover, who had been elected in 1928, suffered the blame for the onset of the Great Depression during his term. Hoover maintained that the Depression was short-lived and that it was not the government's job to get involved with the plight of individual citizens. He was so loathed by the public that the vast shanty towns where homeless people gathered were called Hoovervilles. His policies were scoffed at in newspapers and magazines. All the while, Hoover maintained the economy was improving. The public didn't believe him. Farms were drying up. People were homeless and hungry. Unsurprisingly, the 1932 election was a landslide victory for Hoover's opponent, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR was a progressive. He believed the government had to do everything within its power to help the population, starting with farmers in the plains. 
The average farmer in the Dakotas earned only $145 a year. Nationally, farmers were making one-third of the already meager salary they'd earned in 1929. President Roosevelt started quickly on his programs for relief, but for some farmers, it was already too late. They had packed up their battered farm trucks and old cars and were heading further west for California. Others returned to the east, where they'd once left their homes with dreams of prosperity. They didn't always make it to their destination in their shoddy vehicles. Poor families became a common sight along the side of the highway. Mothers would sit with their babies alongside broken down trucks. Fathers would push wheelbarrows of belongings down the road to the next town. But many of the farmers stayed, even while their neighbors fled. The homesteaders had fought hard to tame the wild prairie land. They vowed to keep on and persevere against the dust storms. They believed rain would soon return. Then came the Black Blizzard of April 14, 1935. The date would come to be known as Black Sunday, and the region would be forever changed. Leroy Hankel was the son of German immigrants who had a farm near York, Nebraska. He was out at the general store when a car came grinding to a halt outside. Leroy looked west where the car had come from. He saw nothing but black. An enormous dust cloud covered the entire western horizon, and it was approaching fast. The frantic driver got out of his car, pointing back towards the oncoming storm. He said, that storm started behind me. I outrun it until here, but I just had to stop. The driver and Leroy hurried inside the store as the dust began to swirl around them. The store owner had parked his truck out in front of the building. As the wind increased, the dust blasted the side of the truck, reaching speeds of over 60 miles per hour. The truck began to move on its own. The dust-filled gale was muscling it along the road. It ended up 40 feet away. The dust kept pounding the building as Leroy huddled inside. He said it looked like the worst storm he'd ever seen. And it was only just beginning. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll ride out the rest of Black Sunday on our next episode. We'll hear about the families who abandoned their homes to survive and explore the emergency response from the government that saved the planes. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 